1: Welcome back to New Books Network, Latin American Study, our channel in the New Books Network. My name is Patricio Simonetto, and today we are talking with Professor Daniel Silva. Daniel Silva is an so- associate professor in Luso Hispanic Studies, director of Black Studies, and director of Twilight Project at Middlebury College. He's the author of Anti Empire, Decolonial Interventions in Lusophone Literatures, and Subjectivity and the Reproduction of Imperial Power, he Empowers Individuals. And today, we're talking about his most recent book, Embodying Modernity, Race, Gender and Fitness, Culture, and Vercel, published by Pittsburgh University Press. Hello, Daniel. How are you? I'm good, Patricio. How are you? I- I'm fine. Um, so to start with, I-, I was wondering if you could introduce our listeners about briefly about what, what is your book about? What is embodying Modernity about? Yeah.
0: Um, So firstly, thank you so much for for this invitation. Like I was telling you off mic, when I saw your invitation, I was so flattered and scared at the same time to talk about my work. Um, So this this is a a great opportunity. Um, So thank you again. Um, So embodying modernity, um, to try to put it succinctly, which I will inevitably fail at, um, looks at the, I don't know, a sort of genealogy of what I call fitness culture. I mean, I don't, like there are many definitions of fitness culture and I'm looking at it not only in terms of the, the emergence of, I don't know, commercial gyms in Brazil, Brazil after the United States has the highest um, number of commercial gymnasiums per capita in the world. Um, not only looking at, I don't know, fitness supplements and those industries and gym cultures, but also how fitness as a concept emerges in the projects of modernity within Brazil. And those projects are always part and parcel of the longer history of coloniality and, and racial capitalism. And I wanted to look at how through the prism of fitness culture, how these processes, these these narratives, these projects of modernity are lived at the level of the body and in everyday life. And in order to do that, I mean, I'm not an ethnographer by training. I'm a cultural studies theorist, cultural historian, more so by training. Um, And I wasn't sure even if ethnography would be able to get to the questions that I was asking um, because I didn't want to just, I don't know, and this is important work, talking to gym goers, talking to professional and amateur bodybuilders and stuff like that. But I wanted to get a larger idea of fitness culture in Brazil, especially in different realms of popular media. So looking at fitness magazines, corporal representation on those, but also beyond like fitness media and looking into mainstream visual media, especially like variety shows, um, soccer cultures that deploy certain corporalities for certain things, which I could get into in uh in in greater length um so fitness culture as not just about exercising but about how one looks at other bodies in general and how one living in brazil and aligning with brazilian national consciousness does so through ideas of fit bodies um so I know, it's hard to put it very concisely, um, yeah, but I think you have
1: done it quite well. Uh, it's uh, it's an amazing book, uh, and you're bringing like the main ideas. Um, but but we can get a little deeper on that. So you were talking about how your book uh, places the body and the core of the narrative. So, you, during the book, you establish uh, a relationship between capitalism, state, nationhood, and personhood as, as bodily experiences. So, I was wondering if you can expand a little further on how your book contributes to understanding how these broader social processes are, such as nation-building, are experiences, experienced as as corporal experiences.
0: Yeah. and. In order to do that, I mean, I had to dialogue because the 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 project is very much I don't know focused on contemporary Brazil. But in order to do that type of interrogation, it had I had to go back historically. And in my argument would be that the nation and the state are always corporal projects and are carried out. On the body, so my immediate and probably closest dialogue would be with the emergence of the eugenics movement in Brazil in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, um, which and, and it's a period that dovetails with the the emergence of the first republic, the abolition of slavery, the creation of a modern um, quote unquote political system and therefore the need for a modern body politic and emphasis on the body. And with eugenics, that always targeted certain bodies and it instituted a particular project of of whitening after abolition. Um, And so nationhood for white ruling elites was always a project of building a whitened nation so as many listeners will probably know, there were um, uh, there was the incentivization of European and to a lesser extent Middle Eastern migration into Brazil in order to increase the white population and there was also, the sterilization, quarantining, incarcerating of people of African and indigenous descent in order to build this. So bodies were always cataloged as viable for the modern nation or unviable for the modern nation. Um, And the project was carried out in those terms. And then there's another very intertwined project of modernity, which came with, I mean, Gilberto Gilberto Freire becomes like the, I don't know, the spokesperson for the, the narratives of multiracial modernity in Brazil and the myth of racial democracy um, and arguing that, you know, and it was very much a nationalist project. It was about national pride. No, we're not an unmodern country because because of our population of color, we are a hyper modern nation because of that. We are the universal. And that was, you know, obviously Jose Vasconcelos' term, um, you know, the cosmic race, but there was a certain like universal universalism uh, that Gilberto Freire was arguing for. And that was also, though, conducted and imagined in, in his work through the body, but also conducted and imagined through social policy, um, especially during the Vargas era, um, the first Vargas era, the Estado Novo. Um, And that comes on the heels of social policy that was very eugenics-oriented. And fitness culture within eugenics was a way, and this is what historian Jerry Davila argues, fitness culture and especially physical education classes in Brazil, at this time in the early ni- in the early 20th century, became a mode of, if not physically whitening, culturally whitening the population. And so there isn't this cl- this like s- easy break between you e- the the modernity of the eugenics movement and the modernity of um, F- Freudian thought. Or multiracial modernity. Because the multiracial modernity narrative is still very much steeped in white supremacy. And you know, as um, Nascimento rightly, rightfully pointed out decades later, a few decades later, um, it was a genocidal project. Um, miscegenation as a genocidal project. But miscegenation becomes imagined as Brazilian exceptionalism. And that component gets placed onto the body in particular ways, um, in terms of, and I could talk more about this in, in later questions, but how that the the idea of a multiracial population that is celebrated, how that becomes visualized and imagined in terms of particular bodies and corporalities. Um, but yes, the, the nation is always a corporal experience. And then you get later on into the present notions of modernity that are imagined and placed on bodies in, say, um, the miss boom, boom competition or in bodybuilding contests. Um, In Brazil and also abroad, Um, there's a certain type of nationalism that's evoked whenever a Brazilian professional bodybuilder competes in an international competition like the Arnold Classic or the Mr. Universe, whatever it may be, there's like a national, I don't know, like celebration of that competitor as like an image of the modern nation mm. so it operates in different ways the narratives are placed on bodies and then bodies live these narratives through their personhood
1: in different ways um well this 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 dynamic is is super super interesting and i think it uh, Will illuminate all the studies uh, trying to formulate questions about uh, the body. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I just wanted to to come back a little, uh, maybe to see if you can intri- can introduce our our listener about when you talk about the the myth of the Russian democracy and misgeneration in, in Brazil. What what do you mean and what do you think? What do you think about the myth and what your book is is uh, contributing? To the field, to rethink it?
0: Yeah. Um, So, to try to keep it brief, because so much can be said about the myth of racial democracy and its own genealogy, Gilberto Freire has become, like, the obviously, like, the spokesperson of the idea of racial democracy, but it starts much earlier than Gilberto Freire. It's evident in certain. Um, certain intellectual thought during the last decades of of enslavement in Brazil, Um, arguments being made that slavery in Brazil was less racially violent than slavery, say, in the United States. Um, And even after slavery then the the supposed absence of like institutionalized segregation became for for some intellectual thinkers like Freire a supposed symbol of less racism in Brazil versus then in the Jim Crow South of the US
1: hmm.
0: but in the afterlife in the afterlife of slavery you don't necessarily need institutional segregation when you have white supremacy um, structuring the entire nation state apparatus. Um, so it was very much a. It became very much a way of obfuscating white supremacy, and then in the 1930s, it was very much embraced by. Uh, the Getulio Vargas um, dictatorship the, the estado novo state um, and the the goal was taking the the idea of you know a supposedly racially harmonious or more racially harmonious society than say the United States and arguing that in Brazil, Ray, race, racial identity is less important than national identification. So everyone, everyone is supposed to identify with nation rather than with race, class, gender, sexuality, religion. Um, and that became very much the propaganda of that period. And it ended up structuring not only... I don't know, when we think of propaganda in, I don't know, the more superficial sense of like radio shows and, and pamphlets and stuff like that, but also in like everyday cultural life. That's when Carnaval becomes like a national holiday, national like event in order to supposedly celebrate Afro-Brazilian history and showcasing that Afro Brazilians are Brazilian first and foremost. Um, But Carnaval, in a very, doing that in a very folkloric way. So the way that Carnaval ended up presenting blackness as a a festive thing rather than a legitimate um, epistemology and legitimate identity. It became seen as something within Carnaval, and to this day, as blackness as something to be surpassed, and, and indigeneity as something to be surpassed into the, the into Brazilianness, into white Brazilianness specifically, um, mm-hmm. and so it's taken on so many different aspects um the myth of racial democracy and it's become such a such a mode of knowing the nation and identifying with the nation and like national consciousness so and i, I could to yeah. give one example oh, no go ahead go ahead you first no, no continue continue please um so to give one example of what i was talking about before in terms of like Visualizing um, ra- the myth of racial democracy and notions of multiracial modernity through the body as a corporality. Like a great example, which I talk about, are the, the novels of Jorge Amado. The novels, but then especially the film adaptations of those novels, specifically Gabriela Cravo Canela. And um, Donna Floris and her two maridos. Um, for the translation, be Gabriela Clove, and Cinnamon. Um, Madame Flor and her two husbands. Um, that have and that have two titular characters that are mixed race women. And this is where racial democracy and mestizaging overlap in very in very complex ways. So mestisaging, the idea and narrative of interracial marriage, interracial sexual liaisons as a process by which we get to racial democracy. And in that process, there's the argument that through, through mystisaging or miscegenation, everyone in Brazil is mixed. And therefore there can't be institutional racism because we are, all of us are everything. Um, and then the, the myth of racial democracy and mestizaging get very, and in terms of the, 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 the figure, the image, this commodity, and it became a commodity, the body of mixed race women um, specifically the, quote-unquote, mulata body, um, and in the process, erasing the sexual violence that underpinned mistisaging to begin with, um, and then utilizing mm-hmm. the body over which this violence was carried out in order to have this narrative of like Brazilian exceptionalism. And so that body, in the work of Jorge Amado, becomes a sort of canonized figure in Brazilian popular culture, through his novels, then through the the cinematic adaptations. There were films, there were also soap operas, um, and they became very much, I don't know, celebrated narratives. It's not not only a celebration of a hypersexualized commoditized body but also what that body meant in terms of brazilian history um and Mm -hmm. so the myth of racial democracy placed on the body and the body being used as a text through which to think of and live national consciousness so then what does this have to do with fitness culture Mm -hmm. um And so through that body, that body is always a racialized body, even though it's supposed to work toward erasing race as a category, ironically, but it's also a super gendered category. And fitness culture in Brazil begins to evolve in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, by taking on that body as the archetype of a fit feminine corporality and so fitness tries, starts to aspire to that body and reimagines that body as one that is muscular but in a very gendered way in that the a core component of the mulata body is the distribution of body mass particularly a more distribution to the lower body the legs glutes thighs and much less distribution to the upper body the torso versus for men, then in fitness culture, it's kind of the reverse. But then fitness culture for women and targeting women um, and imagining itself through this body of national exceptionalism does the same distribution of body mass, in this case, muscle mass. So there, like, if you were to, I don't know, go to a gym in Brazil... And you I- identify as in the feminine, whether cis or trans, your body, your fitness regime through your personal trainer is going to focus on your lower body. Mm. It's going to build your, your glutes. It's The program is going to build your, your thighs and tighten your waist. Um, and that has become the like the feminine symbol of like fit body fit corporality in the the sense of like national exceptionalism, and then that's where you get to the, the so deeply problematic um contest that is called miss Boom boom or Miss bottom, Miss Buttocks, however you would like to translate it um because there. All contestants like embody this image of the hypersexualized mulatta, hyper commoditized mulatta, but they are by and large somatically white, and they have attained that body, that corporality through fitness and or through cosmetic surgeries. Um, so fitness becomes a sort of index of modernity as just like cosmetic surgery. Um, and, but aligned with this narrative of like national exceptionalism. So the, what was once a racialized, and it's still to some degree is, and I'll explain why, um, like text of national, multiracial exceptionalism is also getting whitened. Um as more white middle class women have access to to gym memberships, um to different types of commodities, supplements, etc. um and so that contest isn't then just about, you know, I'm thinking about the the consumer aspect. It isn't just about consuming the bodies on stage, it's about consuming national history. Um, Mm. And the contestants do like all types of, like, it's not just a like two hour contest. It's like a a series of, of elimination rounds. It's sort of like an American idol um, X factor type of thing where people get eliminated as the episodes go along um through voting online and they do various tv appearances doing ridiculous like obstacle courses playing soccer in in bikinis um and the way that it's narrated is very much the the buttocks as a national passion a national text
1: it's 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 super super interesting why you're you bringing discussion about how a gender and, and race, but especially whiteness uh, intersects in people's body. Um, in, in your book, you you do you establish a connection between the dominant or the mainstream white masculinity and neoliberalism. So uh, I was wondering if you can explain us a little more about. What can you say about this relationship between white masculinity and neoliberalism uh, and how this could help us to understand the emergence of of Bolsonaro in in, in the last uh, decade?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, fitness culture is one of the, like, uh, industries. It's more than an industry, as I argue, um but one of the like like exemplary industries of the rise of neoliberalism and it's like almost i don't know not a coincidence that the rise of neoliberalism in the 1980s the 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 crushing of labor unions um coincided with the emergence of the the like the most famous bodybuilders turned, like, pop culture icons, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and it was always, like, fitness culture was always imagined there as, like, a white, masculine endeavor, a white, masculine practice. Um, And from there, you get also the, the rise of, like, the commercial gyms, which they're able to emerge because the cost of manufacturing um, gym equipment is much lower during neoliberalism because labor rights have all been, almost all have been squashed. (laughs) Um, Same with the deregulation of supplements and in the U S they've never been regulated um, at least not in the last decades. Um, So you can sell anything and call it a protein powder and you can, like, have very cheaply made um, gym equipment, build your own gym, and open them up, and yeah. But this, it's always sort of underpinned by the, like, popular culture emergence of, of fitness. Um, and with white masculinity at its center. And think about the types of of films that, and I I wanted to get more into this in the book, but the editors were like, you have, you should try to stay focused on Brazil. If not, this is going to be like a 600 page book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, if you think about the films where like these bodybuilders actors were the main, like were the main stars, like Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, they're always white saviors. Um, And so white masculinity, white muscular masculinity specifically becomes like that image of white saviorism and agency in the world of coloniality, which white masculinity... Has always been thought of in in those terms as the agent of white supremacy, um, but it gets visualized and commoditized in, on a much grander scale through the webs of neoliberalism in terms of popular culture, but also in terms of the rise of gymnasiums and fitness supplements as industries, um, and so the how it becomes like always re- recodified as the agent of, of the capitalist world as an agent that has access to, to bodies, has control over bodies, and is entitled to have control over bodies. That becomes an integral part into how you know the world thinks, and especially the fascist world, thinks about society and so and it's no surprise that bolsonaro emerges trump emerges um because the history of fascism has always been very much aligned with white masculinity but here now in in in, you know in more contemporary times not that fascism ever went away the that white masculine core of fascism is embodied through muscularity. And as a, and as a result, muscularity I oh don't know, muscularity and hypermasculinity are always in dialectic. So the idea of muscularity as a masculine thing comes from hypermasculinity, but then it also augments hypermasculinity. Um And I mean, I'm not saying that Bolsonaro is a bodybuilder by no means. (laughs) Um, But in terms of ideology, identity performance in the political realm, his homophobia, um, his transphobia, his racism, he takes a lot of the core of fitness culture and what it has meant for masculine bodies, and taking it to the political realm—I um, mean, trying to sh- shame the country into just confronting COVID like a man, quote unquote—is um, very much a an ideology that underpins. Bodybuilding and just masculinity in general, like bodybuilding, con- being able to control weights, increasing weights, controlling the body, this, sort, this idea of mastery over body and over space and <clears throat> subsequently control over other people is so intrinsic to, to bodybuilding and fitness culture. Um, so in, in many ways they are like, and I, I kind of argue this in the, the, the conclusion of the book that, yeah, the trying to understanding the rise of fitness culture in terms of its gendering apparatuses does give us a glimpse into the rise of Bolsonaro.
1: Um,
0: yeah, and I could say more, but it's no, well, take time you're, you're saying a lot, and,
1: and I think it's it's very illuminating um, to hear from you. Uh, uh, maybe uh, because we we're talking about a conclusion, of thinking uh, the long the whole book project. What do you think there are the challenges for those trying to study the body in Latin America? What do you think there are the the questions that? Uh, people should try to address or, or you will be interested in reading about?
0: Yeah. Um, I There's so much to be done on this topic, especially across disciplines. Um, I mean, I have my own, obviously, disciplinary limitations, um, <clears throat> but there is a lot of room for more ethnographic work on 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 fitness culture in Brazil um th- there is room for also I don't, it could be ethnographic work but more broadly work on queer and trans fitness cultures um I talk a little bit about it in the book, not as much as I wanted to, um, <laughs> it's already like almost over th- almost 300 pages, um, but there's more to do on queer and trans fitness cultures and how queer and trans practitioners of fitness culture, consumers of fitness culture, change the meanings of fit bodies. And same with um, people with disabilities and a, and a critical... And I, I do get into this also in the book, a critical disability studies lens on practice of fitness culture because fitness culture is so intertwined with ableism as well. It's something I haven't mentioned much in, in, in today's conversation. Um, but it's it comes from a culture of ableism that is like hyper ableism, um, from the very first like bodybuilding contests and like weightlifting contests. Um, and so where is there room for, and there is room for people are doing this. Um, my focus was more so on mainstream popular culture and it's intertwining with fitness culture. But I, I think there's a lot to do in terms of How that mainstream, how that hegemonic vision and project of fitness culture is resisted. And by by extension, how modernity in Brazil is resisted through um, queer and trans, disabled, black and brown practices and rethinking of a fitness culture and fit bodies and that's not limited to only people who work out, whatever that may mean, but also just to rethinking valid personhood and ideas of valid personhood and what those mean in terms of bodies. Um, undoing the the, the, the notions of, of valid life that modernity and coloniality have and continue to bestow upon us. Um, so I would like to see more, m- more along those lines. I think there's a lot of room and more in terms of lines. I'm not even thinking about there's so much, so much to, to, to analyze and deconstruct.
1: Well, uh, thanks Danielle, for, all this um, insights about embody modernity. And I want to highlight and invite our listener to to buy the book and to read it because it's is really interesting and, and I imagine will be used a lot for teaching uh, about Latin America. Uh, so, well, thanks again for, for being here. Um, and see you in the next episode of, of New Books Network. All right, thank you so much, Patricio.
0: And thank you to all listeners. <laughs>